turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in, in, in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. Dear Lord, our Father, we come to you. So, so grateful, Father, for letting us be here today again to worship you, to be together as we all march together to Zion, Father, to... Um, we always want to be, Father, on higher ground as well, Father. We always want to be um, looking upward. And um, we ask you, Father, that you please give us the uh, open minds and the open hearts today to uh, hear the words that Caleb will be speaking, Father. We know that they're going to be edifying, that they're going to give us the strength and the courage to go out and share with others. Um, we ask you, Father, to please also help the, uh, the sick of our, of our members who aren't able to be with us, Father, um, especially the DeGrosses and Richard and um, his family and Brittany and uh, others as well, Father. Please help them uh, to heal and to be here uh, again with us so that we all may be also healthy and safe together. Uh, please, Father, um, help us out in the world when we're out at work and out um, where the devil is, Father. We know that he's out there looking to uh, get in, find a, find a foothold into our lives, Father. Please help us to always be aware and to shine bright. We ask you these things, Father, in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Morning, everybody. Good to see all you out today. We got some first timers here today. We thank you for your presence. It's such a blessing to be gathered together and worship God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Some timely words from the Word of God for us today, uh, considering the season that we've found ourselves in. Uh, if you're here for the first time, we've actually this year been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians each month. And each month we've taken a paragraph of this letter and just tried to meditate on what does it teach us about how to think like disciples of Christ. Um, and in fact, you'll notice even in the text that was just read for us, um, the word mind come up. Uh, he speaks about those who set their mind on earthly things. If you back up a couple of verses to chapter 3 and in verse 15, 
Um, he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. That's the NIV. Literally, the word there is have this mind. Uh, twice in verse 15, the word for mind is used. Again, depending on your translation, in verse 16, and then again in verse 19. We've seen that all throughout this letter. Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, is trying to train the Philippian Christians on how to think right. And so we've entitled the series, uh, Getting Our Minds Right with God. Learning to think like a Christian. And all throughout this letter, he's talked about his mindsets and his attitudes and the ways that he thinks. And then he's talked about in chapter 2, remember, the mind of Christ and how to have the same kind of attitude and how to think like Christ. And now here in chapter 3, again, he impresses upon them the importance of how they think. And we've talked a lot about this, so I won't belabor this point. But all real change and all real transformation begins in the mind. It begins with how we think. That's why it's so important for us to get a grip on our minds and to learn to think like Christ. So in the reading today um, that our brother Daniel just read for us, you'll notice in this particular text um, that Paul is emphasizing what the mind of a mature Christian looks like. Look again at verse 15 uh, and notice what he says there where he says, All of us who are mature should have this mind or should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Paul's talking here about pressing on. We just sang about that. But he's talking here about pressing on toward the goal. The mind of a mature Christian doesn't live in the past. It lives in the present and it lives in the future. It presses on toward the goal. But there's an underlying truth that has led Paul to develop that mindset. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. There's an underlying truth about our identity as Christians that leads us to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God, the prize in Christ Jesus. And that is this particular truth that's revealed in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Today I want to talk about this idea, learning to think like citizens of heaven. And if you've been in our study on Sunday evenings, uh, our brother Ben has led us in eight weeks thinking about how to think like citizens of heaven. So this will be pretty much a review of that uh, for those of you who've been in that class. Um, but for some of you who haven't been able to do that, first I just want to say, check that out. You can get it on our podcast. It's available. I would encourage you very much to listen to those things. They'll be good for your soul at this particular time. But truthfully, reminders are never bad for us, and many of you haven't been able to be in that class. So today I want to talk with you from this text about this idea of thinking like citizens of heaven. What does it mean? What does it not mean? 
Why does it matter for us to think like citizens of heaven and how will it change us? How will it help us to mature in Christ? So let's start with what it means. Uh, actually, let's start with what it doesn't mean. Well, when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, he doesn't mean by that that we ignore all of our rights and all of our duties and all of our privileges that are afforded to us as citizens in this nation. Now you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, actually, when Paul first came to Philippi, if you remember in Acts chapter 16, he got in trouble very quickly for preaching the gospel, for casting out a demon. He gets thrown before the authority and he gets thrown in jail. And while he's in jail, when he finally is released from prison, they realize he's a Roman citizen and they're in trouble. And Paul actually makes a big deal out of the fact that he's a Roman citizen. He protests it loudly. He tells them, hey, you're not going to get me out of here secretly. You're going to come and you're going to lead me out. Paul uses the rights in, uh, of Roman citizenship afforded to him. And one question we might ask ourselves is, why did he use that? Keep that in mind as, you, uh, as we continue in the lesson today. But Paul, Paul himself used the rights that came to him being a Roman citizen. So our citizenship in heaven, is in heaven doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to abstain entirely from anything in society or anything in the world around me. But what does it mean? Well, literally, the word here for citizenship is the word polituma, which is the word we get politics from. So when he says our citizenship is in heaven, he, what he means is our politics are in heaven. Our politics are in heaven. Now, to appreciate this idea, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine moving as a U.S. citizen. Many of us here are U.S. citizens. Imagine moving to a foreign nation. Uh, and some of you can imagine that because you came to this nation from, a, from another place. But uh, imagine moving to a foreign nation, not just any foreign nation. Imagine moving to a, a totalitarian nation where the government is, uh, is a dictator. There's a dictator who's very oppressive, very harsh. And now you're there as a U.S. citizen. You're living in this foreign nation. Now, while you're there, probably you're going to try to adapt as much as possible. You may learn the language. You may eat the food. You may try to adapt as many customs there, uh, observe as many customs there as possible. But in actuality, all the time that you spend there, you are still a U.S. citizen. Which means that all the rights and privileges that come with being a U.S. citizen are still afforded to you. Even though it may be dangerous for you to live there, and even though that country may be ruled by a dictator, you don't belong to it, and therefore you have protections, you have privileges, you have rights that come with being a U.S. citizen, even in a foreign land. And that's what it is like to be a citizen of heaven. We may be in enemy territory, we may be in a foreign land, there may be a lot of dangers and challenges here, but we are citizens of heaven. To press this metaphor a little further, um, if you think about it, Paul says in Colossians that we were once citizens of a dark, dictatorial state. You were in the domain of darkness, is the way he says that in Colossians chapter 1. Let's think about that for a moment. But God rescued us out of the domain of darkness, and what did he do? He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So think about that even more. Some of you can appreciate if you come from a country where you don't have the same kind of rights, and, rights uh, that a citizen does here. You can appreciate what this, the, the rights and privileges of becoming a citizen of the United States. But think about that. That doesn't compare to what this text is talking about, that leaving the domain of darkness and coming into the kingdom 
of God's beloved Son. Even though we live in this world, we are not of this world. We are citizens of a kingdom above. And our citizenship and our politics are in heaven. There's a, there's a, I was a writer who passed away, um, who became a Christian later in life in, in London. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge, and this is what he said. Cool name, by the way. Uh, this is what he said. He said, as Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust, and that every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder. As Christians, too, we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot destroy, just as we are citizens of a city men did not build and cannot destroy. Amen? It means that we're going to live as aliens in this world. We're going to live as strangers in this world. We're going to live as people who may not feel like we actually belong because this world, this kingdom that we live in is ruled by the evil one. And because of that, we need to understand that there are going to be times where we feel like outcasts, where we feel like strangers, where we don't feel like we fit in here. But in actuality, in reality, the truth is, as Paul said in Ephesians, that we are no longer strangers. We are no longer aliens. We are now citizens of God's people. We are fellow citizens with God's people. We are part of his household. And we need to understand that. Though I may feel like an outcast, though I may feel strange, though I may feel like I don't fit in here, the truth is that I, I do fit in. In my kingdom, in, in, the, in, the, in the heavenly kingdom, we are choice and beloved by God and we are accepted as his people. And with that, let me just say this. What it means to be a citizen of heaven, it, it means in part that every one of us living here in Brooklyn in the United States of America, every one of us, is a representative of that kingdom, right? Every one of us who is put on Christ, we died with Christ, we were buried with him, we were raised up to walk a new life. We now live and walk and work and do everything that we do, we do as representatives of that kingdom. And I want you to think about this as in this season, in this election season, how is your conduct, what is it doing to the reputation of the king? The king of our kingdom, the king of kings. What is, what is your conduct doing? How is it representing our king? Um, you know, I, I was reading an article a few years back um, about a, uh, it was somebody who was complaining about people who were put in um, as U.S. ambassadors to other nations and how embarrassing they were to our, our nation. Uh, and he started off by telling the story about uh, a U.S. ambassador to Sweden who, uh, who went out one night and got so drunk that he, when he was leaving the uh, place where he was drinking, he passed out in the snow. And if, if it hadn't been for another ambassador passing by, uh, he would have died. He would have frozen to death and died in the snow, and his life was safe. And, and the, the guy was just pointing out um, how embarrassing it was to the nation of the United States of America to have somebody representing them like that in Sweden, doing something so foolish. What do you think about that? Every one of us is, in a sense, an ambassador for God. Paul actually uses that word to describe his role in 2 Corinthians 5. And while there's a sense in which we are not apostles in the same way that Paul was, it is certainly true that we represent God's kingdom to the world around us. That is true in your neighborhood. That is true on the job. That is true in every place you go in this city. You represent, if you are a Christian, you represent 
God's kingdom. And I need to ask myself, am I acting like that? Am I acting in a way that would, that would glorify the king of kings who I am intending to represent? The truth is, some of us, sometimes we get our citizenship mixed up. And so, uh, and sometimes we actually, you know, we act like we're representing something else. Like we're representing some sort of uh, American political party or, or American political candidate. As if we are some, somehow ambassadors for them and we fight to defend them and we fight to, uh, you know, make sure that everybody loves them and everybody knows the greatness of them. That is not our mission as Christians. Our mission as Christians is to defend the king of kings, to represent the king of kings. And we need to understand that we are citizens of heaven. Let's talk for a moment about why this matters, because it does matter. This is very important. There's a lot of things that scripture teaches us about why this matters. We don't have time to cover them all today. I'm just going to give you three, and I'll encourage you to think about more this week. But let me give you three reasons why this matters. First of all, um, just like there are privileges of having U.S. citizenship, there are also privileges of being a citizen of heaven. And the first one I want you to think about is this. It's access. Access. Now, um, I want you to imagine what it would be like to have access to the president. Now, I don't care whether you're a fan of the president, you're not a fan of the president. I want you to think about what it would be like to have access to the president. There's something about that that would be special, right? Uh, I have a friend here in Brooklyn. His wife got to, recently got to go and sit in a meeting with the president to talk about how to improve uh, adoption here in the United States. And I was like, wow, that is cool. Um, you know, doesn't matter what you think about the president, that is cool to have that kind of access to people in power who could actually do something. At least that's the way we think about it, right? You know what this text is telling us? If we're citizens of heaven, you know what that means for us? We have access to the king of kings. Do you remember in the book of Esther, um, you remember the, the great fear that Esther had of going before the king was, we don't know if the king will extend the scepter. Not anybody can just walk into the presence of the king. Not anybody can just stomp in there and make their requests and their demands known and think that the king is going to accept them. So Esther, with great trepidation and with much time to fast in advance, and I assume though the text doesn't say it, to pray, then goes into the presence of the king. But you know what? We live in a kingdom where the scepter is always extended. The scepter is always outreached. That is, God is always giving us access into his presence. The king of kings has given us access into his presence. That is far greater privilege than any privilege you could have in this nation. Most of us will never come into a meeting with the president, but we have access to the king of kings, and we can speak to him at any moment. And we can come to him, and we can cry out to him, and we can bring our pleas to him. And we know that he hears, and we know that he will act. You can't, you, can't, you can't trust that about every other politician. But we know that our king, he hears, and we know that he will act in the way that is best for us. We have access into the kingdom of God. Secondly, I want you to think about this. If we are, in, if we are citizens of heaven, then we have a power that the world does not have. Did you notice in chapter 3 here and in verse 21, he says that we're eagerly awaiting a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Now let's just pause there and think about that. The power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Do you remember that when Jesus raised from the dead, one of the last things he said to the disciples was, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to me. 
That is, all authority, all power in heaven, on earth, all power has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's what Jesus said. That is, there is nothing in this world that is outside of his control. Everything is under his control. You know what that means? That sin that you've been struggling with, or that weakness that you've been battling for years, and you've been having such a hard time overcoming. You know what? Our weaknesses, our sins that we've been struggling with, we have all we need. We have the power that we need to overcome them. There is no sin, no, no temptation, no, no, no struggle, no weakness that we cannot overcome with the power of God who is at work in us. Think about this too. It's not just the power to save us from sin. It's also the power to take all kinds of mess that's happening in the world around us and all kinds of mess that's happening in our life and to turn that stuff into good. We started this year in the book of Genesis. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Do you remember that story? Everything going wrong in his life. Year after year after year. Everything going wrong in his life. And then at the end of it all, remember what he said? Genesis chapter 50. Remember what he said? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You know what? There's a lot of mess in our world right now. A lot of mess in our city. A lot of mess in our nation. The truth is that if we love the Lord, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We read this week, um, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, the, ang- the, the anger of the enemy would have swallowed us alive. And that is true. But the Lord is on our side. If we are citizens of heaven, the Lord is on our side. Therefore, what can man do to me? There is nothing to fear. And that gets, brings me to the last point here. We have access. We have power. We also have peace. Peace. A peace that the world does not understand. A peace that the world does not appreciate. A peace that the world does not even, is not even able to comprehend. Well, how is that? Well, think about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, listen to what Paul says here. I love this text. Such a beautiful image. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in the heavens, not made, not built by human hands. I want you to think about that. A couple of weeks ago, we had plans to go camping out in Pennsylvania. It got too cold, and it was Lindsay's first time camping, so I was like, I don't want to ruin this, so we didn't do it. Um, but I want you to imagine you go camping up in the Catskills or out in Pennsylvania, and, uh, and while you're camping, you set up your tent, you go off on a hike, you come back, and you realize a bear. A bear just tore that tent apart, ripped it apart. Um, you might be like, you'd probably be disappointed, right? Um, where am I going to sleep tonight? You know, this is messing up my plans. We're going to have a good time, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you're not devastated by it, right? Right? Nobody's devastated by losing a tent. Why? Because you have a house. Like you have a house. It's back in Brooklyn, and you can go home and you'll be fine. Like, yeah, we lost our tent. It cost me thirty dollars to buy it, but I can get another one. I can buy another one. I'll be okay. I have a house that that bear can't tear down and can't destroy. You know what, that's true for us as Christians. This earthly body could be hurt, could be destroyed. There are, there are absolutely things that can happen in this world, things that can happen in the city, things that can happen in our nation that could lead us to get hurt. That is definitely true. 
But you know what? What does he say? If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in the heavens not built by human hands. You thought about that? Are you thinking about that right now? I hope you're thinking about that right now. We have peace. Now, why does that matter? Well, one thing is, if you look around right now, and you look around at the politics in this nation, in this city, in this state, if you look at what's happening right now, you see people that are driven primarily by fear and anger. Fear and anger. If you look at why are people, why does it matter so much? Why must we get our person in power? Why must it... it primarily driven by fear and anger. Now, let me pause there and just be clear. I am not saying that everyone is driven by fear and anger. That's not true. But largely, when you look at the political game that people play here in this world, it is largely driven by fear and anger. What this does for us, this, the fact that we have the privilege of a peace that passes understanding. You know what that means? My work in this world, all the work that I do, it's done not out of fear or anger, it's done out of love. It's done out of love. Everything that I do is done out of love. Love for God, love for my neighbor, love for my enemies. Everything that I do is done out of love. And so that peace empowers me to work in this world for good and for the glory of God and to do things that other people cannot do because they are too afraid or they're too angry. And their anger and bitterness hinders them from being effective in the work that they're doing. We have been empowered because we have a peace that surpasses understanding. So, how do we grow in it? How do we mature in this as Christians? How do we make this truth that we are citizens of heaven? How do we make that something that comes alive in us and empowers us and helps us to walk in the way that God would have us to, way, to, to walk? Think about this. Growth happens as we allow the truths that we know in our minds to sink deep into our hearts, to change our affections and our desires, and then eventually our actions. So think about that. Growth happens when we take truth and we put it into our minds, and then we allow it to sink deep into our hearts, and it changes our affections, our desires and eventually our actions. So let me encourage you to think about some things here. How does this prove that we are citizens of heaven? How does it affect our lives? How, does it, how should it change the way that we're living right now in this world? And let me just suggest a few things here before we wrap up. Number one, it should affect our loyalty. Our loyalty. If we are citizens of heaven, then we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. Do you remember Jesus saying that in John 18 and verse 36? He said to kings, my kingdom is not of this world. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, after calling the saints elect exiles, you know what he said? He, Peter later says this to Christians. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That is a people for God's own possession. That, yeah, we're part of a nation, but it's a holy nation. And that is what shapes our identity. Um, I want you to think about today, which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom are you fighting for? Whose side are you fighting on? Psalm 2 says this, really powerful text. Um, Psalm 2, if you don't know that text, you need to know it. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 2, the kings of the earth... Rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in their anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, maybe you're saying, well, that's back in the Old Testament. That's talking about stuff that happened many, many years ago. That doesn't relate to today. But actually, in Acts chapter 4, the disciples say that this has been fulfilled. Look at what's happened around us. The kings took their stand against our king, and yet God raised up his anointed and proved that his kingdom would be a kingdom, as Daniel promised, that would never, never be shattered, that it would endure forever. And you know what? That's still true today. You know, it's still true today that kings of the earth are taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Still true today. It's still true today that the kingdoms around us on this earth are ruled by the evil one. It's still true today that they fight against the Lord and they fight against his anointed one. And we need to remember that our kingdom is not of this world. And if that's true for us, then that will change the way we think about politics in this nation. It will change the way we interact with society in this nation. You think about this. Some truths in scripture make Christians appear, at least to the world, extremely conservative. Isn't that true? If you think about like the sexual ethics that we read about in the New Testament, and you go and tell somebody in, in Brooklyn about what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics, they will say, you are an extreme conservative. That is crazy. That, you know, no sex outside of marriage? Not even lust? Like, what are you talking about? That is bizarre. That is extremely conservative. Thing. But you go and you talk to the same people uh, about what Jesus says about money. And many people would have the exact opposite. They'd say, that is extremely liberal. Your money is not your own. Your house is not your own. You, it's God's and you're just supposed to use it to help others and to bless others and to share with others. That is extremely liberal. You see what I'm saying here? If we are citizens of heaven, then there are going to be some things about what Scripture teaches that make us appear extremely conservative to the world. And there will be other things that make us appear extremely liberal. And our goal is not to be conservative or to be liberal. Our goal is to be with Jesus, Amen. to obey him, to follow him. There are three central teachings that Jesus gave, the, 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 the biblical, the Christian ethics, are threefold. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Love God, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. If you remove any one of those, then your ethic is sub-Christian. That is, it is not of Christ. So let me ask you this question then. If you are loyal to God, how are you doing at loving your enemies right now? How are you doing at loving your political opponents, your political foes? How are you doing with that? And ask, you, ask yourself, am I representing the king in a way that brings glory and honor to him? If you're loyal to God, you will love your enemy. You know what that means? You won't go around spreading lies and misinformation about them. You won't do it because you're loyal to God. And you love God and you know God has taught you to love your enemies. You won't spend all your time talking about everything that is wrong with the people you don't like. You won't do it because you love God and you know that God wants you to love your enemies. If you're loyal to God, then no other political issue will keep you from being pleasing to him. 
It won't. It won't become so important to you that it becomes more valuable, more important than Jesus Christ your Lord. It won't happen. And so, truthfully, we need to understand that as a Christian, we will never feel fully at home in any earthly party. We will, it just won't happen. It, as a Christian, if, I'm, if my mind is, is in the heavens, if I'm a citizen of heaven, then I will never feel fully at home in any earthly party. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not saying that it's sinful or wrong to register with a party. I'm not saying that it's wrong to vote. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if you're a Christian, you will never feel fully at home in any earthly group or any earthly party. The reason for this is, that, is, again, that the world is ruled by the evil one. And the evil one is at work corrupting every earthly party. That's just the way it works. Have you thought about that? Parties in this world are all ruled by the same guy. They're all ruled by the same guy. At the top, there's somebody working within them to corrupt them and to lead, lead people astray and to point people in the wrong direction. And I'll just say this, right now I think there's a temptation with all that is wrong in our world. There's a temptation to look to, to secular parties for solutions. But there's a, there's a problem with this. There are many political movements out there that are tempting us to align with them. And most all of them speak some truth. Most all of them. I mean, if you listen to just certain parts of, of basically any party, you name it, whatever party it is, you listen to some truths that they say, some of it's true. Some of the things they teach, some of the things they promote are truths. I can't think of any exception to that. But you know what is also true? A lot of those, every one of those parties skews some things that are, that are not true. Every one of those parties skews some truth and, and changes things that actually end up leading people in the wrong direction. That's true regardless of what party you may be registered in, regardless of what, what, what group you may be a part of, all of those parties skew a lot of truth. And because their foundation is flawed, their outcomes will also be flawed. We need to understand that. Ultimately, we are loyal. Not to the donkey, not to the elephant. We are loyal to the Lamb of God. He is our King. Therefore, we submit to Him. Let's talk for a moment now about investment. Citizens of heaven. So how invested should we be? in the things of this earth. How important should it be to me what happens in US politics over the next few weeks or what happens in world politics to the saints? Certainly Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29 verses four through seven to the Israelite exiles, he does say we should seek, that they should seek the welfare of the city, the state, the nation, and the world where they resided. They should care. They should care about their neighbors. He says there's a sense in which your peace is tied up in their peace, so you need to learn to care about them. The truth is we should care too. We should care for our neighbor's sake. We should care for, for the people around us. We should care for, for how it's going to affect our families, how it's going to affect other people. We should care too. But we need to realize that whatever city we live in, it's ruled by the evil one. The Bible word for that is it's Babylon. I need to understand that I'm living in exile in Babylon. Therefore, this city is not where I look to learn what is true or what is right or how to live or how to be pleasing to God. I don't look to the city. I look to the Lord. And I need to be careful how much I invest in it. If, we're, if our citizenship is in heaven, if I'm eagerly awaiting a savior, a king, then how much should it really, how much really should it devastate me 
who is serving as president or who is serving as governor or who is serving as mayor or whatever other office. Daniel is a great example here, by the way. Read the book of Daniel. He worked his whole life in government across different regime changes, all sorts of evil powers who were ruling over him, and yet was humble and kind toward wicked people in power. Humble and kind, yet also faithful to God and willing to speak hard truths to the people around him in power. To encourage them to turn from idols and to turn to the Lord. And I want you to think about this. If I'm going to seek the peace of New York City, if I'm going to seek the peace of New York State and the United States of America and the world, I can't be putting my hope in any of these other politicians that are promising things in this world. I pray for our leaders. I hope you do too. Daniel prayed for Nebuchadnezzar. And even when the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar, when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember this? When God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by stripping him of his power and making him weak and powerless, you remember what Daniel's response was? This is what he said. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. You see that? A wicked man in power is getting humiliated by God. But rather than say, oh, great, this is awesome. Look at what God has done to that guy. Daniel says, I wish, it would have, I wish it would be about your enemies and not about you. I want you to think about this. Our hope is ultimately in the Lord. Therefore, our prayers are centered around the kingdom of God. We pray for our leaders, but why? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul says, pray for kings. Pray for all of those in authority. Pray for all people. Why? Well, because God wants all people to be saved. God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't just pray for the, for the wicked politicians to be destroyed. Pray also that they might repent and find salvation. And truthfully, if we'll remember who we used to be, it'll make it easier on us to pray for them. We may see them as worthless and useless and weak, foolish, and evil, but the truth is, we were all those things too. And at that time, Christ died for us. And if that's true for us, then we ought to pray for them, that the Lord would rescue them just as he rescued us. Amen. The people of this nation right now are anxious and worried about this election because their hope is in politicians and governments. But you don't even need the Bible to know that if you go back and you look at throughout history, how many of these politicians actually come through with everything they promised? Some of them have great intentions. They intend to do good, but the truth is they're limited by quite a few things. One is wisdom. We are human. We don't see everything. No politician has the wisdom to know exactly how to handle everything. We're limited by power. Sometimes they may know what the right thing is to do, but they just don't have the power to get it done. That's often true in politics. And so the people are worried because their hope is in politician and government to save. But we are not of this nation. And our hope is not in this government. Our hope is in God. And in truth, we can please the Lord. We can please Christ and have an abundant life in a capitalist or a socialist or a totalitarian regime. It doesn't matter. The truth is, when Christianity spread rapidly across the world, it did so in an empire that was not exactly friendly to Christians. And yet the gospel continued to spread. If Paul's imprisonment can lead to the progress of the gospel and the glory of God, then so can our lives here. And it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter what's happening. All right, let me say two more things before we wrap up. One is uh, about consistency. Consistency. 
If we are citizens of heaven, then we need to be consistent as disciples of Christ. Um, in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about people who, because they did not practice the things they preached, the name of God was blasphemed among the nations because of them. And I want you to think about this. There, is a, there are a lot of people in Brooklyn, New York, and across this nation right now who are blaspheming the name of God because of the behavior of supposed Christians. And I want you to think about this. One of the greatest stains on the church's witness is the inconsistency the world sees between what we preach and what we practice. And think about this too, even, as, even in terms of what we speak out about politically. Church, churches and Christians speaking out against homosexual immorality, but then silent about heterosexual immorality, letting divorce and immorality run rampant in their churches, but saying, nah, homosexual immorality, that's terrible. No, the truth is the Bible speaks against it all. And if I'm going to be consistent, I should speak against it all too. I can't pick and choose which sins are a problem. Uh, I remember back when uh, President Clinton uh, got in trouble for sexual immorality in the, in the Oval Office. And I remember many Christians who spoke out loudly, angry, so angry about that. But then when another president comes to power who gets caught, speak, caught, caught admitting to sexual immorality and admitting to things even worse, nothing. Silence. It ought not be that way for us. We need to be consistent. I can't just speak out against evil in, in, in the other party. I must speak out against evil regardless of who's doing it. God is not partial, and that means we as Christians are not partial either. And if I register in a party, I better be just as willing to speak out against the corruption in that party as I am to speak out against corruption in the other party. We need to be consistent. If we're not, the world will look at us and they will mock us and they will mock our God. We are representatives of the king, and we need to be consistent. If I'm going to speak out against racism, I better be speaking out against abortion. If I'm going to speak out against abortion, I better be speaking out against racism. One of those seems, seems conservative. The other seems liberal to the world. The truth is the, the same biblical truth is at the foundation of both of those, that all human beings are made in the image of God. I need to be consistent. And lastly, let me say this. Uh, if we're citizens of heaven, it ought, to, it, ought to, it ought to have an impact on us as a community here. The, the world ought to see us, and I think many of them already do. They see us and they say, this is crazy. How do you get people from such different backgrounds, from such different parts of the world, different cultures, different places from all over, different political uh, perspectives? How do you get people like that and you bring them together and they're all united? Well, Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Remember, Jesus is the one who brought together tax collectors and zealots. People from the far right and people from the far left. And you never read about them fighting. You never read about them attacking each other. You, you read about them working together in harmony for the kingdom of God. And I want you to think about this. We as a people of God, we need to realize that if we are citizens of heaven, then we are not going to fall victim to the schemes of the devil. There is a war beneath the war. That is going on. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that we are not ignorant of his schemes. Recently, there was an article done by the Wall Street Journal uh, exposing, I talked a couple weeks ago about Facebook and technology. Um, but in the article, they, they spoke about how the algorithms they found in their research on Facebook, that the algorithms were, um, were intentionally leading, uh, producing divisive content. Because what they realized was the more divisive it is, the more engaged people will stay and the more you'll pay. 
right? The, the advertisements come. And the, so engagement means more money for them. And instead of actually addressing that and changing their algorithms to not make their stuff so divisive, they actually just covered it up because they realized how much it was producing for them. You see, as Christians, we have a different perspective here. We know that there's an evil one beneath all of that who's working to divide, to ruin, to conquer, and to destroy. Therefore, we are not going to allow temporal earthly politics in one small speck of the globe to ruin our relationships that are meant to be eternal with God our Father and with each other who we're going to spend eternity with. If I'm a citizen of heaven, then my relationship with other citizens of heaven is far more important than any earthly, temporal, political policy. And I need to live like that every day. If Jesus can bring together tax collectors and zealots, then he can hold us together too. And we better be careful that we don't allow politics, U.S. world politics, to divide us and to lead us away from our king. Well, let's bring this home. Uh, really, all the songs we sang today said, could, I could have just stood up here and said, we're citizens of heaven, sat down. Um, but I love this line in the second song saying, who else could rescue me from my failing? This is verse four. Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father, only a holy God? Think about that. Probably never going to get invited by any president to call him father. Probably never going to get uh, rescued from any real danger by any politician. But we have someone far greater than that. We have a God who, who I mean, think about it. Who else has made promises so precious and magnificent as these? All the promises. Read the paper. Read, read the news. I, I don't encourage that very much, but, but do it a little bit. And just take a look. Go and look at, at all the news. What's it about? It's all about stuff that happens right now, and it's all about stuff that, will, that just focuses on future, but not very far in the future. It's not thinking at all about promises that are eternal. It's not thinking at all about where this stuff is going to end. We are Christians. We are citizens of heaven. We need to be thinking about who has the greatest promises here. And it's not going to come from any earthly human. Who else has the authority that he has? You might say, well, this election really matters. Because this person is going to get power. Who else has the authority that he has? No one. And then think about this. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of politicians, there's a lot of people that are going to make all kinds of promises to you. If you vote for me, I'll do this. If you vote for me, I'll change this. If you vote for me, I'll, I'll fix this in this world. But how many of them come through? And truthfully, a lot of them don't even really care that much about the promises that they make. Many of them over-promise and under-deliver because they didn't really value the people that they were promising to to begin with. They just use people for their own ends. Or you might say the evil one uses people for his own ends. Think about this. Who else would offer his only son? We, we worship a king of kings who said, I love you and I care about you so much that I'm leaving the kingdom of light. I'm going down into the domain of darkness and I'm going to go down there and I'm going to bring you out. 
In fact, I'm not just going to go down. I'm going down to the cross, to the grave. And then I'm going to come back out. And when Jesus was raised up from the grave, you remember what happened? His body was transformed. He was given, us a, he was given a glorious body. Do you know why that was in part? Why did he let the disciples see that? You know why? Because that was his promise to us. That one day, he will come back and he will rescue us again from these earthly tents that are going to decay, that are going to be ravaged by disease and pain and sin. And eventually they're going to, they're going to go back to the dust. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to raise us up and he's going to give us a glorious body. He's going to transform our body to give us a glorious body that is eternal in the heavens. I want to tell you, there's no kingdom like that. I want to encourage you if you're here. Maybe, you, maybe you're here and your mind has been set on earthly things. Maybe you're here and your God has really been your gut. Maybe you're here and you've been following people who ultimately, they, you know, you know this is true, that the path that they're leading you down is leading you towards destruction. I want to encourage you if you're here in that situation to repent. God is calling all of us to repent. If you're realizing that you're on a path that ends in destruction, repent. If you're realizing that you are, your God has been your gut or your wallet, repent. If you're realizing that you've been glorying in things that are actually shameful to God, then repent. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be transformed by the mercies that God has given you. And then lastly, be careful who you follow. There are many people who are walking right now who are enemies of Christ. And we need to be careful. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And if you follow them, they will lead you down a path that ends in death. But our citizenship is in heaven. We are walking toward our Savior. Therefore, we need to follow in his footsteps, eagerly awaiting his return when the same Savior whose body was resurrected from the grave and transformed into glory will come back to us and raise us up to share in his glory. Look for the people who have their eyes set on him. Follow them. Walk in their footsteps. Look to them. Follow them. Learn to think like them. And let's live as citizens of heaven. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for your word. You've given us everything we need to be able to live and to walk and to work in this world. And I pray, God, that you'll help us to live as your people, to represent you in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. Help us as your people, Lord, to be united, to be, to be united around the cross of Christ. Help us to take up our crosses daily and follow after you. Help us, Lord, to crucify our old desires and all of our old politics and all of our old um, ambitions to let go of those things and to rally around our standard, our anthem, the cross of Christ. Help us, God, to set our eyes and our hearts and our minds not on earthly things that are doomed to decay and be destroyed. Help us to set our mind and our hearts on you. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.